Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Before we get into the episode, I have a baby update. Jaffrey and I, my wife Jaffrey and I, welcomed our first son, Soren Avon Danielson Coke, into the world on Saturday, February 22nd. He is happy and healthy. And if you would like to see some pictures and kind of track his progress, I would recommend following me on Instagram. I'm posting basically every day because I'm obsessed and I don't care what people think. Uh, my handle is Dan Coke, but spelled like the drink, D-A-N-C-O-K-E. I also have a link to that Instagram handle in the show notes here. So for a while, I'm going to keep this every other week release schedule going that we have been doing so that I can prioritize time with Jaffrey and Soren. Thank you guys so much for understanding. But there will still be at least two patron-exclusive episodes each month, even during this chill baby time period. So if you need more content and the other 56 episodes before this one are not enough to catch up on, uh, you could sign up at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. There's a link to that in the notes as well. So this week, I am so pumped to be sharing this conversation. I had it back in November at the American Academy of Religion Conference with Philip Clayton of the Claremont School of Theology. If you've been listening to this show for a while or if you've gone back through Older episodes, you will recognize Phil from episode 12 on Quakerism and Panentheism. 
This conversation that we had today is based around a book that Phil co-authored with Stephen Knapp, and it's called The Predicament of Belief. Now, you don't have to have the book to follow along, uh, but the book in its own way really is, it's kind of a work of apologetics. It's making the case for what they call Christian minimalism uh, over and against, for instance, atheism, agnosticism, and other options. But the part of the book that resonated with me the most and that sort of emerged as the theme of this conversation was this idea that if we take the modern world seriously, then there just are really good reasons for doubting Christianity. Even this kind of minimalist Christianity that doesn't make a whole slew of theological claims. It's not obvious that Christianity is true. And to pretend that it is, is probably to fool ourselves. Suffering and evil are very real. The universe is massive. Miracles don't seem to happen very much. And outcomes in this life are seriously unfair. Now, we might normally think of these doubts as counting against our faith. So we have enough reasons for belief in this column. And then if we have enough of those, then all these doubts and the suffering and all that stuff, well, if there's fewer of those, then we will come out and we'll still be a believer. That's how I used to think about it. But there's another way to think about these doubts, these serious issues. Maybe no faith is truly awake in the modern world that doesn't include some of these doubts. If you have sufficient mental capacity, sufficient interest, and sufficient leisure time to explore that interest, and I know those are big caveats, plenty of people who are beautiful and very religious and love God do not have all three of those things, the mental capacity, the interest, and leisure time. But if you do have those things, if you're the kind of person who likes listening to podcasts like this or podcasts that are at a similar level to this or reading books on theology or whatever, if you are that kind of person and you don't come up against some of these big problems that cause you serious doubts, maybe you actually are not paying attention. Maybe your, quote, faith is something more like a crutch, to use Marx's terminology, and I don't really love the way that Marx thinks about faith, but some, for some people, their faith can be a crutch. A lot of people who really stress their certainty regarding theological claims seem to me to fall in this camp, that they're actually not taking this stuff seriously. But the entire point of this podcast, as you know, is to argue that, in fact, we can have a faith that takes both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And this conversation follows that prompt, I think, in a fascinating way. Okay, that was kind of a long soapbox for me. I apologize. Uh, but I think you guys, if you thought that was interesting, you're going to love this conversation. Let's get into it with Philip Clayton. Philip Clayton, thank you so much for being here, man. Hey, it's uh, great to be on the show. Recording this in my hotel room at the AAR convention down in San Diego. Suffer, buddy, suffer. <laughs> in pure comfort <laughs> and luxury. So this is an interesting conversation I'd like to have with you today. I'm looking at this book of yours that you wrote with Stephen Knapp. It's called The Predicament of Belief. And really the book gets to kind of the core of what this show is all about. So in the one minute like introduction that's at the beginning of every single episode, when I use the name of this podcast, so like this is sort of the central thesis of this show is you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. 
you are a person who I think instantiates that uh, as well as anybody else I'm aware of. You take Christianity very seriously and you take the modern world very seriously. And I guess in if we're framing it that way, we're talking a bit more today about taking the modern world very seriously, although we're also going to hear how you take Christianity seriously to modulate and, I don't know, for how you personally work with these kind of big areas of doubt that we find in the modern world. And I, I say it's the modern world because a lot of this doubt did not exist. Some of it did. We'll talk about that. You know, worries about evil and stuff is, is as old as humanity. Uh, but a lot of this stuff is – these are modern problems, science, historical criticism, stuff like that, right? So that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to like get into some real robust modern doubt. But then we're also going to hear – you know how how you come out of that as a as a Christian. Is there anything you want to say before we kind of get into all of that? Maybe to tell a story. Great. I was at Fuller Seminary, and like all good seminarians, I felt that I lost my faith in one of those semesters. And I had great profs. I remember uh, Dan Fuller teaching us about the Book of Job, and he was offering answers of faith all the way through. But for some reason, as a 22-year-old or whatever I was, I was surfacing the doubt. And I was struggling, and my other friends from Westmont College were doing a Bible study on Tuesday evenings, and I was invited any time because I was sort of the lost soul, uh, and a bunch of other young Christian leaders. And I was out with the full of reprobates having a beer and talking about Nietzsche. So this was a really harsh semester. And I got a call from a former parishioner, when I'd been a youth minister in Santa Barbara, and she said, I'm on top of Mount Wilson with my daughter, and I'm going to drive the car over the edge. And Jeez. but and I said, um, Bobby, don't. I'll, I'm going to come up there. Now, all I had was this little motorcycle, because I was a dirt poor seminary student. And I started driving up Angeles Crest Highway from Pasadena, which is this interminable, like 20 miles straight up to get to you know, whatever it is, 8,000 feet. And there I was sitting, heading up this mountain in the middle of finals week, not having prep for my next final. And uh, my little motorcycle was (laughs) struggling to make it up the hill. And as I drove, I literally, I'll never forget this because it was a line in the sand. I thought, if there is no God and Nietzsche is right and so forth, then I should be down there making my career better and, you know, getting the prep. And then I thought, is there any way on heaven or in hell that I would not drive up in response to Bobby's call? I said, no, I absolutely have to. And then I said, my actions show that I believe in God in my heart, whatever my head says. And that has never gone away. I have raised every reason. I've had to walk through lots of valleys of shadows of death, but I've never been able to lose that certainty that there is something that, that my life is just so tied up with that I can't escape. Yeah, certainty is an interesting word that you use there. I think you're kind of using it colloquially, not in its technical sense of actually being certain. Uh, there's a quote from the book that I, I have written down to talk about later, and we don't have to talk about it right now, but it might be worth just uh, putting it out there. You write that um, the strength of one's practical commitment may and very often does exceed the certainty of one's belief. And that's really what that story is talking about, right? You were going to go answer the pastoral call, even though at this particular moment, you weren't really believing in God, right? So it's like, it's almost, sometimes these are automatic these uh, reflexive actions we take that have to do with our faith. And I guess the reason I like that quote is because it is taking the center of Christian life away from arguments about theological points or evidence for the existence of God and 
and putting it at like the choices we make as people, right? Our, if we live into our commitment as Christians or not. I've read and taught a lot of theologians over the decades, but there's one who is the theologian of my heart and my faith, and that's John Wesley. And teaching uh, Wesleyan theology and ecclesiology is for me still, it's, it feels closer to the New Testament than any other theologian I could name. And what you just said is at the heart of a Wesleyan theology. He preached on one passage more often than anything else in his thousands and thousands, First John 4, 7, and 8. Love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knoweth God. He who does not know love does not know God, for God is love. He said he, uh, that grace precedes us, accompanies us, and pulls us forward. That's that side, the practical side. That's the heart of it. And then our minds, sort of like um, dialing in a radio station, an old analog, you know, 1940s radio, and you, you kind of get closer and closer, and then you hit it for a moment, and then you get the fuzz. And when, when you get it, exactly tuned into that station. That's what gets transmitted. Our minds, however, don't hold the station. Our minds are kind of made to flit around. And we have to bring our minds with us, right? We don't crucify the intellect. But the doubt is when, as the mind is pulled in different directions and struggles to do its little bit. But I think my faith can be more stable and settled down to that deep, in medieval music, they called it cantus firmus, that repeating sort of underground swell on which all the rest of the beautiful music was built. Hmm. Well, let's get to some of these more unsavory <laughs> topics, uh, at least for the Christian who's taking the modern world seriously. So you guys, you lay out five, uh, what you consider to be the five biggest issues for Christians today. And um, we're going to go through them one at a time. And for the next bit, we're, we're not going to soft pedal here. We're just going to, we're going straight at the doubt. And then later we're going to come back and we're going to talk through each of those again from this perspective of how you – basically how those doubts have informed your theology and how you live your Christian life in, in spite of them, basically. Um, or, I don't know, wrapped in them like a blanket, however you want to describe it. That's closer. More like that, yeah. So the first one is science. So when you say that science is uh, one of these five problems for the modern Christian, what do you mean? Again, it might be helpful to start with a story. I was at Westmont College in its conservative days. Scripture was dictated by God and was utterly without error wow. in all matters of science or history. Oof. Plenary doctrine of inspiration. And with two other brilliant people, one became a well-known theologian, one became a farmer. Kevin Van Hooser is still at TED's, Trinity Evangelical yeah. Divinity School. We did honors theses on faith and reason. And I thought, I, and mine was reason to hope was my title. How could I best give reason to hope? If I could show that Christian faith was consistent with science, which is the standard for knowledge, we are in. We're safe. I, by the way, this, you know, not to interrupt too much, but this is the, the lure of science for literally every segment of, of Christian life, uh, or rather every uh, segment of Christian society. So even the super conservative six-day creation fundamentalists they, as much as they possibly can, will make their arguments appealing to science. Same with the old earth creationists. Same with the intelligent design people. And, and so everybody does this. This is like, it says more about our time and place, I think, than it says about anything else. We live in an era where science is king. If you want to convince someone of something, you convince them with science, if you're really serious. And that's that's kind of contingent, right? We just kind of happen to be at that moment. However, as you're going to say, I think 
science really has been very effective. And so that is one of the reasons that it is such a powerful challenger to some of our theological assumptions. Yeah? Yeah, that's exactly it. So I wrote the thesis and I used science to defend the faith. And I got to Fuller Seminary and began to work with people who did science. My professors weren't, <laughs> weren't worrying about these implications and uh, who did anthropology and who did cultural difference and who studied other religions and things. And they said, well, it's actually feels a little harder than that. Go deeper. Uh, so it's interesting. It was often Christian leaders who would say go deeper, which I respect actually. And I was born with a mind that was pretty sharp and would not stop until I could, you know, sort of like the dog that catches the prey in its mouth and just shakes and shakes. And so I kept digging and what did the theories really say? What are the methods really? How does science really work? And I realized that it wasn't as easy to synthesize as I thought. And unfortunately, it involved a lot of the reasons that in my Christian education I'd been told were reasons to ground the Bible's veracity, its inerrancy, that why God had to exist if the universe exists, why men and women are supposed to be set up the way they are. And the ways it was used were actually not convincing. And what the science saying was discrepant from my upbringing in Christian teaching. And then I began to realize that there's something about the very way that science works, the way that it amasses evidence and draws careful hypothetical conclusions and then holds them up to criticism. I remember a Nobel Prize winning physicist once said, when we got the such and such breakthrough for which I won the Nobel Prize, uh, a Christian guy actually, Bill Phillips, we took our data to the second best center in the world and said, show us we're wrong. And when they couldn't, we were disappointed, his word. We flew to the third best center in the world and show us why we're wrong and they couldn't. And we were disappointed, he said. That is not the mindset of faith. Hmm. So that... We could go into whatever details you well, want, that's, but that's yeah, the science in the big picture. So that is really interesting. That's worth spending a minute on. What makes science work is this constant doubting of oneself, of one's methods, of one's results, of one's interpretation of the results, systematic doubting at every possible point and challenging and challenging it to prove it wrong, prove it wrong, prove it wrong, prove it wrong. That is how science goes because basically there's an assumption – the world is hard to understand. It's hard to carve nature at its joints, as people like to say. We have mental processes and conceptions that work for us, and we try and map those onto the physical world, and it doesn't always go the way we want. And so that's why we have to have this really difficult, rigorous, time-consuming process. But when we get to something that cannot be disproved, well, now we've really got something. And so that thing we've got is, in a sense, a pearl of great price. This is real explanation of the world that God created in my, in my view. But that's not, the, that's like the opposite muscle that we're encouraged to use when we're at church, for instance. It's like, have faith. Have faith can mean so many different things. I'm sure there, someone's written a book entirely just on the word faith and all the different meanings that has, but what, what they almost never mean in youth group or during the sermon is, Everything I've just said to you, test all of it with rigor until you fall asleep in front of your computer or notepad and prove that I'm wrong. You know, like that is not like it's at worst, it's the opposite of that. Uh, at best, it's something like, hey, here's an option and I'm just trying to facilitate your life of faith. But it's never disprove this. That is just not the incentives for a religious institution or religious leader. So there's something really interesting there. 
and it yields fruit, right? The, the way that science does that. I think you put your finger on what was the crisis of those years is that I had gone to science to prove my Christian faith. And by the way, I should say every week I still get an email where somebody sends me, here's my book manuscript. I can show that the letters of the DNA chain spell the gospel, or I can show that quantum physics requires God. Um, and it's always just the positive evidence that they can pull from reading some journals to make a Christian case. What I learned from my lucky experience to be with some of the world's greatest scientists over these years is that their mindset is the opposite. How Now, what am I going to do? There's the bottom line question. Will I exclude that mental way of thinking as incompatible with my Christian faith? Or can I find a way that both can co-inhabit in my psyche, in myself? Let's go to the next one. Uh, I have a little subcategory for science, but I'm going to wait for uh, religious plurality because it's kind of related to both. But your second item in the book is evil. Now, this one has been around for longer than the modern science problem has. But this is basically the problem of evil. We don't have to – we're not going to solve it today. It comes up pretty often on this podcast. But just what's the problem of evil for the believer in 90 seconds or so? I come from a tradition where it was believed that everything happened was God's will. Right. I was driving my car to, Billy, to participate as a counselor in a Billy Graham crusade. And I had my beautiful, soft, leather-bound Bible in my hand. And so I prayed that there could be a parking spot close to the fairgrounds so that the Bible wouldn't get wet as I walked in. And a park, at that moment, somebody pulled out, and I parked in. And I, I prayed a prayer of thanks. The world was so carefully controlled that God would help me find a parking spot so that my leather-bound Bible would be all right. Then I look at things that happen that you cannot conceive the children of the village gather in the church with a Catholic sister for their worship service in the morning, just as the mudslide breaks loose, crushing the chapel and all the children and their teacher is killed. And you say, wait a minute, God gave me the parking spot, but couldn't do some little thing so that just those random group of kids would be slaughtered by a mudslide. And philosophers, you know, Christian and non-Christian philosophers reflect deeply on this. The question that is raised in those terms is if God knows everything and God is completely love and God has the power to change things, why would God not act? You know, we can do the theoretical problem, but I think it's the instances. I teach the Holocaust on a regular basis to future Christian ministers, yeah. wrestling with God and watch the breaking of people's deep, deep faith in God. I just think that we need to first, as a requirement of Christian faith, to sit long and hard and often silently with that one. And then we need to respond in a more humble way. And we may need to say that the world as it appears to us is not the world that one would expect, or I'll say it stronger, that should be there if God picks parking spots to protect Philip's Bible. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, one thing we can't do on a podcast is sit in silence for a while. <laughs> uh, and anyway, the software that I use would automatically edit that out. Um, but th this is this is really the hardest one for me. I think times where I worry that I will lose my faith, uh, it tends to be around the problem of evil. It tends to be. Uh, I've said this a couple times now, but more, most recently, just because of what I'm learning in grad school. It's the prognosis differential with extreme forms of schizophrenia correlated to IQ. 
So you're born, and schizophrenia is lar- a lot of it's genetics, not only genetic, so 60% or something. Don't quote me on that. So you're going to have it. And then you get the bad straw of having an IQ of 65. And your chances of really recovering and in, in living any kind of robust life uh, despite your schizophrenia are very low. And if you had been born with an IQ of 125, you have a much better chance. And IQ is not entirely innate, but you can't do much to make your own IQ better. You can have better nutrition. You can be exposed to better education. You could have better attachment. Some of these things that can affect IQ, but none of those are things you really get to choose. I mean, maybe nutrition at a certain age, but basically you're just given this and you can't do anything about it. And so you're, you're dumb. You don't understand the world as well as people around you and your schizophrenia is worse and less likely to, to be cured. That's f- I mean, that is hard to sit with. I like how you said the world does not look like it ought to look if God is micromanaging everything and is really loving and just and all of that stuff. A lot of people say, well, this is a philosophical challenge that we have to struggle with. Maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe. But it actually is about the nature of our Christian faith. And there is a faith that expects God to do those things, or a faith that says God has a reason that my sister, my youngest sister, is dying now of cancer. That's a kind of faith. There's another one that says we don't know. That's a faith of mystery, not explanation. I'm more drawn in that direction. And there's another kind of faith that says God exists, God creates, God leads the world for a purpose, and God is not responsible for Julie dying right now. That's an internal question that we as Christians need to be wrestling with. I'd much rather turn our focus in those directions than give you my long expositions about the philosophical arguments. There's another angle on this that's not exactly evil, but I think it's related in terms of if God is such and such a way, we would expect to find such and such a thing. So it, it follows that line. Our mutual friend, Sarah Lane Ritchie, theologian, she was on the show a handful of episodes ago, and we, talk, we were talking about psychedelics and the research that she's doing around that. But we also talked about her personal struggle in her own faith to experience God as a personal God. She desperately wants to. She has tried many things that have worked for other people. For me, contemplative practice has worked. I know in, in talking with you over the last couple of years, prayer, right? You you have a, a, you can sort of tap into God's presence quite easily after decades of prayer. And I was sort of met in a, in a sort of a supernatural way, for lack of a better term. I don't know if that's the term I want to use actually, but I was sort of flooded with God's presence after having done very little to earn it, you know, to, to make myself available. And having some kind of gut-wrenching conversations with her about, yeah, she's tried those things and it's not working. And there, so there's this problem. This is one aspect of what's sometimes called the hiddenness of God problem. But it's really similar. It's like if God is relational and loving and whatever, and if a human being tries sincerely to be in touch with God personally, then we would think that that person would succeed and be met by God. Now, we, of course, don't know exactly all the ways that God can meet people. But this is one of those things where it's a real challenge to me. They're like, why isn't she experiencing this? And as Christian Wesleyan, who said, has just said on your show that God's grace precedes and accompanies and follows every one of us at every moment, prevenient grace, the one that always, the grace that always comes before, then we have, we know, we believe, I make the statement that God is present to that person, to all persons. 
And yet they sincerely asked for some sign of the presence of God. Then you add somebody who's worked selflessly in ministry for decades, like Mother Teresa, who prays and says now in her journals, for 30 years, I had no sense of the presence of God. In that time, she helped, let's say, 20,000 people to die, brought them home, bathed their bodies, held their hands while they died, burned them on the ghats in Varanasi, and went back out onto the streets. And you say, and she had no sense of the Holy Spirit saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And you just shake your head like, no, that, that, that's not right. Yeah, so this is one of those, I, I, I want to keep coming back to this image of sort of like wrapping our faith in these robust doubts. And that's one that I, we've just, Sarah's here at the conference as well, and got to chat with her for 15 minutes last night. And I just told her that like, I have been reconciling my faith with her experience since we had that conversation. It's something that I'm sitting with. And that's kind of what we're talking about today, sitting with these things. The third one that we're about to sit with is religious plurality. This one makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. They One day they realize, wait, if I had been born in Iran, wouldn't I just be a Muslim? Um, which doesn't necessarily mean that God doesn't exist, but it's an issue for the particular religious tradition, whichever one you happen to have been born into. What else do you want to say about religious plurality? I More and more, I think of, of individuals. Uh, I was talking to a student, I think I can say his name out loud, Logan uh, Seiler at Claremont. He's a doctoral student. He said, and he had the story just like us. I was raised as Methodist. I kind of lost my faith. I was wandering. I was part of political demonstrations here and there. I traveled to Europe. I mean, this could be your or my story. And, you know, one day in, well, I was the lowest of the low, I met this teacher and he invited me to come to a worship service. And so he went with the teacher. It just wasn't a Methodist church. It was a mosque. And in that mosque, he said, I felt the overwhelming presence of God, the majesty of God, the power of God. I was overwhelmed. And as I lowered my head to touch the ground and prostrated my body before God in prayer, I realized this is who I really am. I'm a child of God, beloved of God, that God is knowable to us, offers us help in carrying out God's will. And I devoted myself to spend the rest of my life studying and living for God. He didn't convert to Islam. And so he converted to Islam. He did. Okay. So he's a Muslim and, now. Right. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I've told that story over and over again. Yeah. All my friends tell the same conversion narrative. It just was the wrong building. It was right. like next door, buddy. <laughs> you missed it by hundred yards. But the experience was genuine. And wow. he is powerful in giving testimonies to um, you know, Buddhists and atheists and and he knows the experience of being without God. And he knows the experience of being with God. And he will describe in online classes, you know how you, you make little posts and everyone reads it? Yeah. So we have like 15 future Christian ministers and Logan. So he'll be saying, <laughs> you know, and we're writing about prayer. And he'll say, let yeah. me tell you about what regularity in prayer is or fasting for the sake of God. Yeah. And, you, and I just think, okay, now I'm supposed to say everything about you is wrong. Like there's a book coming out recently, uh, coming out on how is the God of the Christian the same as the God of the Jew or the Muslim. So I'm, I maybe I'm supposed to say that's not even the right God. You don't even know God at all. You have no knowledge of God, much less Jesus Christ as, as Savior. That's so, the yeah. problem of religious plurality for me in a nutshell. Okay, so that's one problem. But the way you're phrasing it is almost the kind of way that gets me excited. So, th so there's a way that religious pluralism can initially be a problem. Let me see if I can do this. It's initially a problem because we are supposed to believe 
that we have some special exclusive purchase on truth, that we were born into the right religion and other religions are wrong. Then we might discover, oh, these people have really genuine faith and that might solve the first problem for us. But then that creates a second problem, which is, oh, if all of these religions or some of them anyway, more than one, are genuine ways for people to connect with God, am I undercutting the specificity of my tradition? So you hear but the scandal of the incarnation, the scandal of the particular is a is an idea within Christian theology that like this is the scandalous thing, that it really was in Jesus that God shows up, and that's the clearest vision we have of God. And so then the plurality thing becomes a problem again. So I'm happy that I could have a slightly bigger family that I can wrap my arms around that includes people of other faiths, but is there still enough here? You know, it's hard to be a Christian in a lot of ways. It requires a lot of me. Is that worth it? Like, maybe I could just... If, it, if they're all true, or you know what I'm saying? Like, it creates a second problem. I love the way that you turned that one, because what everyone expected when they heard you say that topic is we're going to say, can the non-Christian go to heaven? Will the non-Christian burn eternally in hell? Or, as Karl Rahner famously said it, is the Hindu actually an anonymous Christian? Yeah, anonymous Christian, right. And doesn't actually know it, but really is in relationship with the God and Father of Jesus Christ. And you've turned it into a question of... The surprising ubiquity of grace. How could grace be operative anywhere other than the explicit naming of Jesus Christ? And that means that you're setting us up for a great discussion when we get back to the faith and the doubt part. And that's where I'll save my comments for that. Okay, save it for that. So here's my um, here's another one that's connected to both science and religious plurality. I want to call it something like psychological plurality. So... By the way, plurality is just plural, pluralism, you know, many options. There's something about our time and place that we are born, our genetic material we happen to inherit from our parents, and then also our personality, some of which are formed, you ask any parent, some aspects of our personality are formed before we're in the womb, basically. Oh, you were always picky, or oh, you were always outgoing, or you were always, whatever. And when you get into like, deeper theological and philosophical discussions. And when you really get down to the nub of whatever issue it is, people always end up disagreeing basically at an intuitional level. They just intuitionally, this seems better to me than that. And those are generally not resolvable because people just have different intuitions. This is a problem of of thinking about faith in a certain way. If you want to be confident that you have got things right, but you know that your intuitions, your personality type, And these things are arbitrary. You know, if I had been born a different person, I would think something else was right. So that's a, you see how that's a, it's a related problem. I had never quite thought them through in that same way. The recent neuroscience data says that certain brains, so certain people are more geared toward certain types of responses. Yeah. So Roger Haight has a book. I first one I read was 2008, a book called Happiness, where he looks at six different brain types that they can identify, make a hypothesis, test it, and locate. A certain kind of brain will feel strong feelings of revulsion. So the brain will fire like crazy when it sees something disgusting or revolting. So this is a brain person who's hypersensitive to revolting things. Mm. Those brains tend to correlate with judgment on, say, homosexuals. Right. 
because I find them revolting. I think of what they might do, and it just I find it revolting. Another and by, one and is. By the way, I don't, I don't judge a person like that. I know that's the point. I don't have that kind of brain. But like one of a show that my wife and I watch, there's a gay couple on it, and I do feel icky when I see them kiss, and they kiss regularly, and I just I have chosen to override that because I have reasons. To think, you know, if I were gay, I wouldn't find this revolting. It's kind of arbitrary that I do. I don't think there's anything morally wrong, yada, yada, yada. So I just override it. If my brain were wired differently where it really overwhelmed me, if I had that kind of brain, well, would I be able to override it so easily? It would be a lot harder. So that's it. And now then there's brains that really like order or need order. We see that by how people keep their dorm rooms in college. Uh Yeah. Right? And then there are other... um, uh, brains that this have this just need for justice. Like when they see something that doesn't seem fairly distributed, it creates this, this huge fire, like something's not right in the world. And other brains don't work that way. Yeah. It looks like that that's independent of upbringing. There's a certain inbuilt tendency. This is like your point about schizophrenia before. Now, you've connected that with religious pluralism. I think that's really interesting. We know that some of those qualities correlate among Christians with those who are more on the progressive end, and other of those brains correlate with Christians who are more on the conservative end or fundamentalist. Does that mean that my location is a product of a brain I was born with? And Dan, if that's true, could it be that the person who's drawn to Jewish practice or Muslim practice or Buddhist meditation has a brain or parasympathetic system. Exactly. This drawn. And then, am I going to say that somebody's going to burn because they were born with the wrong kind of brain? Yeah. So, I mean, okay. So, you've mentioned hell twice now. <laughs> That's, of course, the worst version of all of this is like, I, you know, to put in relief, we'll consider they're going to hell, right? But even without hell, so I, I haven't really believed in, I haven't believed in an eternal hell since I was old enough to really think about it, basically end of high school or early college. But even if you just want to say, is this the right way to be living? Is is my faith true? Is it correct? Does it describe God as God really is? There's still an issue even without hell. Um, there's just the issue of like, am I just doing what I'm doing because I happen to have been born this way and at this time to these people, right? Another one that is the the big five trait of openness to experience maps really well onto political affiliation. So the more open, the more likely you are to be liberal. The less open, the more likely you are to be conservative. But that also maps onto new theological ideas. The more open to experience, I bet you could map on how interested in feminist or liberation theology are you? And the less open to experience, like how important is it to you that your church follows the Westminster Confession or these creeds or has an inerrancy statement, right? Like it's just, it's so arbitrary. And so the problem is something like, well, maybe God doesn't want me to know the truth, but there might be a sort of a personalized path for each person. So I, I'm, I'm so, skipping ahead. Now I'm starting no, no, to modulate. No, no, no. But that's actually, we're right on topic because look at what that tells us about doubt, right? Because this isn't a specific, where we are right now isn't a specific doubt, do I don't believe in something, right, right. double predestination. But rather, it's a reason to have doubt about the things that I most I have the strongest emotional response to. And I've tended to say, when I'm strongly drawn to something, well, it's got to be true. 
It's the testimony of my heart. It's the spirit speaking huh. unto me. Yeah, inside. right. And the things that I'm really, I think are awful, that's a sign that, that the spirit is guiding me away from them. And then you, let's say, as a neuroscientist, come along and say, Phil, I can explain why you're responding in those ways. Look at your brain firings. And they go, you're like a whole bunch of other brains. And you all tend to have certain similar beliefs. Yeah, so it it has the potential for turning our basic evidence that we naturally think is telling us what we are really confident about and less confident about as like, oh, actually, it might be the opposite. The more confident you are, it seems totally obvious to you. And how could anybody disagree? Maybe that's when you should be the most suspect of it. And so look, this looked like a really gentle part of the conversation, but in some ways it's now feeling like disturbing to me Yeah, because we can doubt a given belief, say it conflicts with science. But what this, you guys, you psychologists are really the frightening ones to me. I'm not a psychologist I know, yet. I know it. I, know, I just love to say that, to push you a little bit. Yeah. Because um, these are arguments to doubt or wonder about all of my beliefs. Yeah, everything. Yeah. How much, whether all the concrete belief things that I form are expressions of something I was born with, like a brain with certain traits. Now, I, I, I yeah. don't think that this is unanswerable. No, that, But what yeah. we're doing is kind of just slowing people down and saying, you know, how might religious pluralism and, and psychological pluralism make us wonder about certain of our specific Christian beliefs. Yeah. I just, I just will say really quickly before we move to the fourth thing, this doesn't necessarily lead to like true skepticism of everything, right? Your, your brain works pretty well. You get around the world, you know, even if it's making shortcuts, like it tends to be pretty accurate. We're not talking about, I don't think that you can argue to like a a true skepticism or whatever about everything. But the implications for especially like less testable, so back to science, less testable claims that are more like, well, I just think that this is what Luke is saying. You know, well, okay, you think that, but like what about someone with a different brain chemistry? Would they think that? And so how much of our interpretation of the text comes down to just what happens to be in our brains. I love your example. So my brain has always loved Galatians 3.23, no longer male nor female, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. And yeah. it just feels like I the justice part, all the yeah. justice areas of the brain <laughs> yeah. go. And my brain has not loved Ephesians 5.19 and following, right? So uh, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands right. and so forth. But there are people whose brains light up yep. when they say, well, that's good order. It's good order, and yeah. For sure. I mean, I do a, grew up in a Presbyterian church, so all things done decently and in order. There must have been a lot of those kinds of brains among my Presbyterian pastors. Yeah. Well, so there is something I want to flag to make sure we talk about later. As we talk about wrapping our faith in these doubts and letting these doubts speak to our faith, speaking as a member of the kind of deconstruction, reconstruction podcast community... I think this is one that many of my friends have not taken seriously. We have just dived in with both feet into our liberal intuitions, and we're maybe not careful enough. Now, I I don't think that that means we should then retreat back to our old naive dogmas, but we need to be really careful about the new thing that we're putting forward. If we're going to be, we might want to be scientifically literate with evolution, but if we're not psychologically literate, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot. That leads to a cool principle. We could say doubt cuts both ways. Yeah, oh, that's good. Doubt has challenged some of the, I was a hyper fundamentalist, and doubt has cast a lot of doubts. But now, doubt also casts doubt on the doubter. Yeah, right. 
Okay, the fourth doubting topic, the state of the historical evidence. So this is this is basically the, the evidence for the New Testament, right? Evidence about Jesus and the early church. Um, this is one that I think people get just such a variety of claims they hear about this. You have people waltzing into churches going, it's incontrovertible. You show up at one of these events, though, for an AAR or a Society of Biblical Literature, SBL, you know, any particular meeting at the SBL for any particular book of the Bible, and there is just a litany of opinions. It's not nearly as clear as everybody thinks it is, you know, how to interpret this or what's the archaeological evidence for this event or whatever. So what people even think when they hear me say the state of the historical evidence is already conditioned by who they've heard from. Was it apologists? Was it Dawkins? You know, who was it from? What is your, can I say, sober-minded take on the actual state of the evidence? What does it actually look like? What we so want is a simple faith, to read scriptures that are so crucial to us and simply to be able to believe them. And that's what we don't get. The hardest part is that we have to think about it. Even today, I, I often will read a scripture, and especially if there's a New Testament scholar in the room with me, Christian or not, who's challenging things. I just want to be able to believe it. I uh, grew up in high school. Every verse was true. And so since I don't doubt any of them, Scripture interprets itself. They're all true. And I just walk in that territory without any questions about it at all. And it was, um, I've often said, First uh, Corinthians 11 that got me. Why the woman has to wear a veil on her head. And Paul writes, for the sake of the angels... And I asked my youth pastor, what does that mean? And he said, well, if she doesn't cover her hair, the angels are going to lust. And I walked away. I thank you, thank you. And I walked away and said, no, wait a minute. These male angels are watching these women in the shower. They're watching them in bikinis, all these things. No problem at all. But the woman walks into a church and her hair is uncovered. Like the angel's watching her brush it just a few minutes ago. But then the angel lusts and the whole thing's wrong. And I Angels just only have access to humans when they're in the physical church buildings, Phil. That's the obvious solution to that problem. There we go. That's refreshing. But I need angels when I'm driving, and that's another problem. Um, so then I realized, okay, so maybe that wasn't completely true. And it's a little bit like the beginning of the avalanche. Right, exactly. And now, listening to New Testament scholars, I realized that a lot of it is more complicated, right? So Paul didn't write all the letters of Paul. Okay, I've gotten that one. Hebrews is written later. There's a gap between First and Second Thessalonians. I mean, these are pieces you can start to bring in, but then you reach the hyper-skeptical arguments, which are part of the serious debate. Actually, in the building we're sitting in right now, right. there are probably 10 sessions on interpreting the New Testament going on at this very moment. And then I realized, somebody once said, we don't know anything about Jesus, not even his actual name. And now I say, well, wait a minute. Fuller's statement of faith is the Word of God is infallible guide to faith and practice. And that's where I still cling. But if none of it means what it seems to mean, then I'm in trouble. So for me, again, it's not abstract. It's about how do I live out my faith knowing what the state of the scholarship is. And look, Dan, if I say, I can't say every word is true. So then I say, I will interpret the what's in there by my favorite New Testament scholar, my super conservative Robert H. Gundry, who played such a role in my life. But then I meet another one who's equally as compelling— that's problematic. Okay, then I will go by a particular school of scholarship. Then it turns out that that school of scholarship is challenged by another, right? I can go with my sense of where the Spirit is guiding me. Spirit tells me that, you know, I don't have to worry about Ephesians 5.20. But wait, 
I might have lots of reasons to doubt that. I may not just like that. It's a psychological. So what's my authority in interpreting a scripture that I know is inherently controversial? That's where I, how I name my struggle. That's how you, that's what you would call the doubt is just how to move forward, reading the Bible and seeking to conform my life to the way of Jesus. When I know that verse by verse, the way the yeah. source for my understanding the way of Jesus is controversial, is debated, is inherently deeply controversial. Yeah. And you also, in the book, you mentioned the, the so-called Gnostic gospels, which, you know, everything I ever read about those for the first 10 years or so, just this is nothing. This is just a bunch of people trying to sell books. And, but then you raise the question of like, look, it does raise some interesting questions of like, why were these buried and other ones weren't buried? How come some of these have more feminist themes in them than some of the gospels that we have? Uh, and I'm not, I don't know anything about the Gnostic gospels. I'm not claiming to, or that they are legit or that they should be taken, you know, but it's just like, you can't just simply say there's nothing to see here. That's not a wise way to go about it. Now, combine what we just did with this area of doubt with religious pluralism. So I teach students, uh, pastors, they read the Quran and look at it. And a lot of us who are not Muslims look at it and you say, well, that's a kind of weird thing to be in a scripture or, or to a Buddhist scripture or to a whatever. Yeah. And then I look at these people and they're going, oh, this verse is so important. And then I watch them interpreting them the way that we do from the pulpit. And they'll say, yeah, well, okay. So, you know, it looks like it says this, but in early hadith, right? So an early word ascribed to the prophet yeah. or one of his companions it says it to interpret it this way. And you say, okay, well, that could well be, but that's not what the verse says. Yeah. Then I realized that the New Testament We're doing commentaries the same are the same. Yeah. So if you are not already tied to the authority of these words, like I'm not with some of the other world scriptures, they say, okay, well, that was wrong. He, you know, they blew that one. But they can't say that. They can't say it. I, as a Christian, am tied to the words about Jesus. And they're looking at me and going, that's a word one. Why do you want to hold on to that one? Well, it's the New Testament. Yeah, and? And so you see how the two problems come together. Yeah. Yeah, actually, these things are really related, and and this now we're going to go to the fifth one, which is pulls from a couple of these as well, which is the resurrection. This is the scandal of the particular. I guess the scandal of the particular is maybe more the incarnation, right? That's the idea that God would come in one person, but that 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 one person was raised from the dead, and then you. I love that you mentioned this ascended to heaven because this ends up in the creeds, and this doesn't make any sense to us today. Heaven's not above us. They certainly thought it was back then. So what do we do with that language? What do we do? Is it a revivified corpse? Does Jesus have a body made of pneuma, like electricity, as, as Dale Martin likes to say? Is it N.T. Wright's idea that it is a glorified body, the kind that we will have in the next life? If that's the case, how does that body show up on this plane of existence? How many levels of mystery are we needing to appeal to, to make sense of that. And then maybe to just wrap this up with a bow, then this most complicated issue is at the very freaking center of the Christian story. What else would you like to say about the problem of the resurrection of Jesus? Well, thanks for making it so easy, Dan. <laughs> um, probably for me, the, the reason of doubt for doubt that I have struggled with the most are the two central contentions that Jesus' body was raised. So the physical resurrection and related but not equivalent, that the tomb was empty. And both of those have to be true for a Christian resurrection to be believed in. That's what I was taught. So here now we have the historical scholarship. I read why 
those beliefs would have been important, if not for the New Testament authors later on in debates when the orthodoxy was being established. And they had a particular reason to need to make both claims. And then to add to the complexity of it, some of the other texts in the New Testament don't seem to require those, uh, physicality or empty tomb. So the argument from 1 Corinthians 15, you just cited, there's a physical body, and then there's a spiritual body, a soma pneumatikon, a body of spirit or spiritual body, literally is the translation. That doesn't sound like it's the identical body. In fact, it was sown mortal, raised immortal. The core Pauline doctrine of the resurrection, I would say, in 1 Corinthians 15, spelled out without needing to make the distinction of physical resurrection. So now I go, okay, so I want to take Scripture seriously. I read and study Paul. Also the opthe, the he appeared to, uh, repeated over and over again, also in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't seem to mean visual appearance, as in, you know, you could touch the body. Now, of course, John, as Jesus, asked Doubting Thomas to put his hand in the very wound, but then there's arguments about that. So now I find extra-biblical arguments, wondering, do you really need those two? Inner-biblical arguments, and the last thing I should say is theological arguments, like Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 14 to 15, 16, where he said, I go away, I send the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ comes, will be with you, will be your comforter, therefore peace I leave with you, the end of John 14. And you say, okay, so that is what's crucial, is Jesus going away and the Spirit of Christ constituting the church and being a part of conversion in, in our lives. If that's all you need, that's a lot easier to figure out because... In some sense, Jesus did go away, and then obviously the church got started. But then again, John's the last written one. It's written like 100 years after all of this, maybe, or at least 70 or so years after, probably. And so, you you know, then you check yourself for wanting to rely on that one because it makes you feel better. The, the one thing I want to say about the – we're obviously not going to solve this resurrection debate today. The thing that I find is whenever anything comes – like the resurrection question – is like the sorest spot in the wound when it gets opened. When I when I hear stuff about the resurrection, I think I get the most defensive, I get the most worried, I get the most almost like mildly panicked that I've wasted my life, something like that, because it's so central and because it's so hard to understand. It is a, a, truly a kind of a miracle. It's It's the central miracle, whatever you think miracles are. So I just think it's worth noting that, that, that like maybe what I should do when I hear stuff brought up about the resurrection, like what I want to do is like immediately race to the first plausible answer I can find to calm down my cognitive dissonance. Maybe I should sit with that cognitive dissonance and ask myself why I'm feeling that so much. That's brilliant. That's actually really brilliant. What you've just asked us to do as we're leaving this section on the five doubts is to think about how we respond when we find ourselves reading or listening to a podcast or debating about one of these areas of doubt. And you're saying, guys, stop and just think a little bit. Be aware what's happened to you. I'm, I'm sweating. I'm, I feel anger. My visual field is kind of graying yeah. out, right? And, and you say, okay, pause. What, can, you, can you learn to sort of sit with it? I think it's a California expression. Yeah. So let's, let me see if I can... Rather than resolving it as we transition, let me see if I can think of what I've learned as a person of faith who spent his life in these discussions. And that is, over time, 
I've developed a calmness. This particular issue in front of me now isn't the make or break of my Christian faith. At this moment, I am not called to throw it all away and join the band of happy, frolicking atheists. But instead, I want to listen. I want to make sure I understand what's being raised. And I want to lay out the arguments I'm aware of and see how the other responds and internalize those responses. I may learn something new about the criticism that I haven't heard before, the reason for doubt. And so rather than that frantic thing that shuts down brain, I'm almost hyper aware, hyper perceptive in my brain, what's being said, how can I voice my response to it carefully and so forth. All right, then I go away and let it settle in. And I guess here's what I want to say in closing. I get to ask... It's right for me to ask, what is the minimum that I can still say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? And so let's just say he was a significant teacher. Yeah, that's not enough yet, but okay. He was a unique teacher, rabbi, so that no other world religious teacher I've ever encountered offers a way to live that seems more revelatory, more right, more deep, more worth following, living and dying for. Okay, that seems essential. I'm locating myself maybe more conservative yeah, than some of your that's guests. That's interesting. But, okay, let me yeah. one more step. And then, what if he was this great teacher and I want to fold my, I follow, and I will, no matter what else is true, build my life and death around this teaching, the things he asked for, and the way that the early church worked out. But what if it just ended there and there was no resurrection at all? Right? Paul says, then you are of all men most to be pitied. Also, First Corinthians 15. And so I sit with that and I think, now there are obviously Christians who seem comfortable with that. I can't be. Jesus' life has to be linked somehow with whatever is that ultimate reality above everything else. And if it's not, it's not enough for me. I will still do it, but I will be a nihilist. I'll be a Christian nihilist. But if Jesus' life and death is somehow a revelation of the nature of ultimate reality, of the divine, and and that even more unbelievable, but I believe that God, God's self has been changed by the event of his son dying and that God's presence now to us is a Christological presence, that the spirit, the very presence of the divine in the world is a Jesus-shaped presence. Is that enough for me? And I say, yeah. Well, that, that should be enough. Yeah. But that's not saying a whole bunch of creedal language. Sure. Yeah, true. And so that, do you see what I'm saying? Because I know what I need, what I'm looking for, I go into Nick's argument, here's you as the New Testament scholar saying this or this, and I can listen, and I'm kind of computing it. Okay, doesn't touch that, doesn't touch that. Okay, now he's taking on that, it, that God's touched by Jesus in any way, or that, that the presence of God is a, Christ, is a Christomorphic presence. Then I say, okay, he and I disagree, because that's one of my non-negotiables, right? That's something that... My, I can't imagine my faith. I just simply live in the world as one who experiences God as Christomorphic. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about agnosticism uh, and Christian agnosticism, which is you identify as a particular subset. And then we're going to get to how you are able to wrap your faith in all five of these doubts and how that changes your faith uh, such that you can live with that dissonance, basically. Earlier this week, we released a, I think, a really fun and interesting patron-exclusive episode 
basically in the You Have Permission Facebook group, which is itself patron only, which kind of makes it better. Frankly, it's everybody really wants to be there. It's awesome. Somebody posted this meme that someone else had posted on their timeline and people were commenting and kind of loving it. And this person was like, I think I have some problems with this. And we got into a long comment thread about it. And it became clear to me that, you know what, we should just do an episode about this. So I brought on Jonathan Parsons, who is a philosophy professor, and Meredith Monroe, who is a licensed therapist, also both members of the You Have Permission uh, patron community, or as we've been calling ourselves, permissionaries, which I did not come up with, but which I love. Permissionaries is so funny. Anyway, here is the text of the meme. It's got a woman sort of smiling with arms out, like laughing up into the rain. She's got her hood on, so I assume it's raining. And the text says, she realized she was forgiven, not because she was worthy, but because Jesus is. She was loved, not because she's lovable, but because God is loving. She's a child of God, not because she's good enough, but because he created her. So we get into like some theological issues. It's, it sounds pretty reformed. We talk about if it's possible uh, for if it's possible for God to be loving and her not to be lovable. Uh, and we talk about the gendered aspect of this. Why is this uh, pointed at women, for instance? And we have a nice like hour long conversation, kind of dissecting all of this from a philosophical, therapeutic, and theological lens. I took the theological lens. That's the kind of stuff you get if you're a patron. It's five bucks a month, but there is a sliding scale. If you really can't afford $5 a month right now at this point in your life, I get it. Send me an email. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. But if you do want to sign up, you can go to patreon.com slash Dan Coke or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron five bucks a month two at least two exclusive episodes. I think that number is going to start going up uh, because I'm going to be doing a bunch more interviews with psychologists and people who are doing psychology of religion um, research. Basically, I'm going to use, well, I'm going to use the patron exclusive uh, episodes as an excuse to talk to people doing frontline research. And so I think that actually that number two is going to get bigger. Anyway, you get at least two and you get access to the Facebook group, which is awesome and has become a really cool community on its own. All right, I'll stop pitching the Patreon, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Okay, back to the conversation with Phil. So I want to begin this brief bit about agnosticism by saying, I think, as I understand it, on my less certain days, I'm something of a Christian agnostic. I want to motivate that. By that, I mean, I can't imagine living my life in a non-Christian way in terms of my values. Even the fact that I want to question my faith is in some sense a Christian move because I'm concerned with truth. And I think that I'm sinful, whatever that means. So whatever I happen to want to do at any given moment is probably not sort of the best barometer for what's good or what is, you know, so even just like pushing back on this stuff is a reflection of my faith. But you you made some claims in that last section about, or you, you mentioned some claims about sort of this uniqueness of Christ. And it's not that I don't, I so I experienced God Christologically. I experienced God in the Christian tradition. I pray the Jesus prayer. I pray the Lord's prayer and God meets me. When I think I become more agnostic on those days is I just think, but I can't possibly know 
what it would be like to have been raised in a Muslim or a Hindu environment. And I would probably experience God those ways too. So I don't know that I have access to any kind of argument that could set apart Christianity with any sort of level of certainty, objectively speaking, from other religious traditions. Because I think there's so much subjectivity in in an individual believer's experience, basically. Now, maybe that doesn't quite qualify as Christian agnosticism. So let's think about that phrase, Christian agnosticism, first, and then the other questions. It's clear that there's some things that just are sticking for me that are holding. Yeah. And over time, and I've lived part of my life in free fall, so I know. And many of my seminary students will come in and say, you know, you'll be surprised to hear this, but it's semester two, and I feel like I'm in free fall in my faith. And I'll say, yeah, you and every other seminary Yeah, student. exactly, right. Especially at a liberal seminary. Yeah, right? but yeah. even at conservative oh, yeah. seminaries. I've heard a lot of those stories, too. And I think what I'm recognizing as we're interacting is that, that a given person says, as Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. Right. But what I want to do now is recognize that that's not a universal place. So I've just said in three ways, here I stand, I can do no other. But I recognize a kind of arbitrariness of that because many of my Christian brothers and sisters say, buddy, where you're standing is not good enough. You need to be about standing about three feet taller there, you know, further up the mountain, closer to the top, to the pinnacle. Right. And they, however, don't hold everything that the creeds have said and something further beyond them. Remember a moment in a class, we were looking at views of who Jesus was, and we put him across about a 30-foot blackboard across the front of the room. On the far left, we had a Unitarian, you know, nice teacher, not the best, but okay, right? All the way across, and we had a pretty conservative evangelicals, and then a woman from the Church of God in Christ, Kojit. This is a really conservative denomination, and she held the highest imaginable Christology. And we proudly put it on the board. Of course, I didn't put it all the way over to the right, but pretty close. Then we had this guy from Armenia, an Armenian Orthodox priest. He stood up and he said in a very thick Armenian accent, which I won't try to imitate, well, I'm you know glad to hear this, but that is an unacceptable view. The actual hypostatic union is the only Orthodox view, and you are, in the teaching of our church, anathema, which means may you burn. Yeah. Outside of the theme, outside of the acceptable. And I realize that each of us stands at some point yeah. where we're not asserting everything. And that actually takes the barb out of those out of that awareness here I stand. And it takes the barb out of those times when you can't stand where you normally stand and you find yourself feeling like you're in free fall. And I want to name one because it's it's raised by your point. Imagine that there's somebody who says, Yeah, I kinda like Phil. I think Jesus is this unique teacher and stuff. I'm not leaving out the resurrection question for a moment. And then he says, but at one time in my life, I lost that. And I only found in the teachings of the Buddha, let's say, a, a teacher who was worth listening to or the existentialist readings, right? Now, if you realize that where he was standing is not the only place that's acceptable to God, in my view, then you can say, I don't have to panic that I'm in this period of just looking, not hold, being able to hold that belief right now, and that I'm going to be calm, I'm going to see what settles, I'm going to read these things that I'm now drawn to, but I'm not going to lose from my eye this place where I was, and I'm going to continually ask, will I ever get to the place where Jesus' teaching seems significant again? And if so, what parts? Are there any of those that are, for me, non, non-negotiables? I can't give up that teaching, let's say the Sermon on the Mount. You see yeah. what I'm saying? We kind of get to locate ourselves without guilt. And I guess as a person who's wrestled with doubt for 40 years, I want to say, 
that's my first, that's what I most want people to take home. That when you wrestle with doubt, if you can say, oh, I've located something. I was in free fall and I got my finger in a little crevice. I'm on this little ledge is about a foot and a half wide and there's a thousand feet below me that I could fall down to, but I'm sitting still. Pause, catch your breath and check out the view. Well, that's the perfect segue into sort of wrapping our faith in these doubts. So let's go through each of these. And I basically want to hear from you how these doubts have modified your faith. I think that's how I'd like to frame it, but you can say whatever you want to say. So let's start with science. How has that doubt changed your faith? I wrote a dissertation, defended it at Yale. Uh, it was published by Yale University Press, did all the work. The book arrived in the mail. And always when a book arrives, it's a fantastic moment. You pull the book out, you start paging through it. Like, whoa, this is the best book I've ever seen. <laughs> this is cool. And it flipped open to pages 46, 47. And my eye fell on one word. It was the phrase secular believer. The paragraph said, I realize that it's possible to have doubts and be a believer. Out of this engagement with science, I realized that that's not a contradictory form. I am 100% believer and 100% doubter. That is not halfway, but the belief won't go away. And the doubt is always going to be a part of me. And it's almost like to make a public confession in front of brothers and sisters around the world. Hey, broken or not, this is what I have to offer. I hope you'll take me in as a believer and I'll hope you accept that I will all, I'll have a brain that's always going to ask the questions. And that's what I love about your podcast because you invite us to do that. I appreciate that. So specifically with science then, how does that manifest itself? I guess maybe my question is kind of practical. You know, one thing that I am still struggling with is every time some sort of discovery is made, even though I try not to have a, a God of the Gaps style theology where God is whatever we don't understand, I still get that tinge of like, oof, another hit to my faith or whatever, even though I'm expressly trying not to have that kind of a faith. Science just carries so much heft these days. And every time I learn a little bit more in grad school about, you know, the the arbitrariness of people's minds or, you know, behavior patterns or whatever, the variety of human experience uh, or some new scientific discovery that explains, you know, well, maybe this is what's going on when we think we have free will or, you know, whatever it is, right? All, all these things come. So so how how has that actually modulated your faith experience? I'd like to suggest that there's there are three steps to take in wrestling with the doubts that are linked to science. Number one, to love the things that humans are discovering. I am just a complete addict. I'm a science nerd. And the, I read the science news that comes in day by day on the internet and just am amazed. Wow, that's so fascinating. I always wondered how that worked. Oh, that may, that theory didn't hold up. And just to embrace it with excitement, which is what science does. Unexpected overturns from stuff, amazing. The second part is to let that module of open exploration be rich and healthy within you. So not to say, well, because I'm a Christian, I can't be exploratory and adventurous in how hypotheses get formed and tested, beliefs come and go. And I actually want to keep that as a vibrant part within me. And then the third one, and this is point, this is step three. The first two have to make sure they're stable is to say, no, I got some work to do. I'd thought that this was a reason for believing in God. And now it's been explained in a different way. 
Hmm. Okay. So do I, are there any other reasons to believe in God? Because at first, you know, you want to go into free fall. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm good. There's other reasons. Okay, then. So that one wasn't what I thought it was. I can work with that. Yeah, I had a little bit of that experience doing my interview with uh, Myron Penner on cognitive science of religion, which I, I'm, at, I'm attending a bunch of those sessions. I think that's really interesting. It's, it's provided some challenges of some stuff that I thought were sort of these independent reasons, and maybe they're not. But there's something else really interesting, and I should keep being curious, you know? I'm trying to. Uh, evil. Okay, this one, this one I've had some experience with, and I, can I venture a thought before you say, I think wrapping our faith in the problem of evil has one practical benefit, which is it keeps us from triumphalism, which to those who have suffered is probably about as big of a turnoff to the Christian faith as one can imagine because they have not been triumphant. And if you have the problem of evil sort of close to mind, you just can't be triumphal, triumphalist about it. You just, it, it just does humble you because you're humbled by the sheer amount of suffering that people and other creatures have had to deal with. So I, I think that's a benefit. It doesn't feel as good. You don't have that certainty as much. I don't know. What do you want to say about, about this one? I want to incorporate evil into the heart of my faith and the deepest parts of what I believe in God. That's been my project. I want to understand God's desire to create and whatever the kenosis, the self-emptying of God in the moment of creation was, that's based on Philippians 2. Um, I want to, to see that I know that God pulled back in some way to allow me as an agent to exist, all of us to exist. How much did God pull back? How much contingency did God allow into the world? As a person of faith, I believe in it's all, in the end God will be all in all. The book of end of book of Revelation, but in between on these misty flats, how much contingency did God in God's infinite wisdom decide to let into the creation? And I've come into the position that God allowed a lot between being all that was before creation creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, only God existed, to the final God being all in all, is a space that God opened up by withdrawing this all-controlling power and presence so that we as independent agents could exist and freely worship and follow God to become God-like or Christ-like. And evil, apparently, this is my belief, is something that God has desired, decided to allow, and that God is not controlling all features of the evolutionary process or all features of my life. God's got basic things that God's trying to get done, but it apparently allows for unbelievably awful things to happen along the way. Yeah. Another way of talking about this issue is that it moves you on the continuum. So if maybe you start on one side of the continuum of, I've got this real confidence, this kind of unshakable confidence in my faith and and I'm unshakable. I'm that's I'm not movable. And then what the evil does when you see it is you go, okay, well, maybe I can't not only am I unshakable, but like God's plan is unshakable, right? In that first spot. And then this scoots you along. Well, maybe God's desires are the same, but God's not gonna accomplish this stuff by himself. And so it moves you to a bit more of an activist posture rather than being, well, I'm unshakable, I'm certain. God's got a plan for this. Nothing is really required of me to 
if the world looks like this, then maybe something more is required of me, which then leads, hopefully, to my participation in God's work. Yes, that's good. But I don't feel like my faith is lesser. In fact, in some ways, the faith feels deeper and more robust. No, that's what I'm, yeah, that's what I'm implying. Yeah. Because the usual way to say it is, we used to believe in A, B, C, D, and E. You don't anymore, so you've lost faith. Yeah. The quantity is decreased. But faith isn't like that. It isn't an adding up of a number of propositions to which you assent. That's really where this podcast is taking me. Yeah. It isn't the number of propositions or how much, you know, it's only God who's acting that constitutes faith. Faith is that we are in a world of genuine evil, a world where my sister is dying, a world where people are born so that their odds of happiness or even survival are minimal, a world where we sit in comfort looking at San Diego Bay and people in Africa are seeing the water turned off and there's no other water. That is a mysterious world. It's a world that calls forth faith in God. And I see more divine intent in how we would relate to and see God in that picture than I do in the God the triumphant, Christ, Christ the only, is only the victor. In fact, and so again, I want to read it theologically, we believe in a God, the Father, who suffered as Jesus suffered on the cross. It's gotten a Latin word, patripassianism, the Father who suffered. And God, I can't even say that word without getting goosebumps. I would really love to be adherent to a teacher who said, God, God's self suffers, then the opposite. So what about religious plurality, religious pluralism? Uh, I'm really curious how you're going to answer this one. This has been probably the biggest change for me over the last 10 years is recognizing just how strong of an intuition I have that I really got to deal with pluralism, that I really can't just sit in self-satisfied, you know, smugness, a lot of alliteration there to about, you know, happening, happening to have gotten it right you know, in this, my corner of the world. So how has wrapping yourself in the doubt of the plurality of religious traditions and experience changed your faith? I sound Trinitarian today because it comes out in three steps. <laughs> uh, the first one is that I found people who in every respect were more Christ-like than I more godly than I and most of the Christians I know, and they weren't Christians. Not only that, they gave credit to Allah, or they gave credit to the bodhisattvas, or they gave credit to a meditation practice. And so that was step one. And that's humbling beyond what I can say, and, and shaking to the core. And step two is that it put me in free fall, and the place it takes you to is relativism. It's all relative, nothing's true, we have no way of knowing lot to say about that. And the third step uh, it has taken many of us to is to circle back around, to be able to say, I'm a Christian. And there are those whose, as I, in the Christian terms put it, whose walk with God exceeds mine in sanctification and holiness. There's a part of me that is more excited than anything else around this question. It's kind of like, what if I told you, you thought the only people you could really learn from are different kinds of, first of all, only you first think your kind of Christian. You can learn from other Church of God of Prophecy pastors, whatever it is, right? Then it's, well, oh, 
I could learn from Eastern Orthodox and maybe even Catholics a little bit. They might have some new way of seeing it. What if you can go to beyond that? People raised in entirely different cultures with completely different linguistic and religious systems, and you've got something to learn from them. Now, I, I'm high on the openness to experience big five personality trait. So again, we're back to this psychological pluralism. I mean, so maybe I just like that because of the way I am, but I do like it and I'm excited by it. And in one sense, this is the most exciting and most interesting of the five for me that I think might yield the most interesting remainder of my life, you know? Beautifully put. I have been hanging out with Janes. Janes are the ones who won't eat, you know, even as vegans, it's not strict enough. They're so careful at what they eat. The whole doctrine, they're the ones who influenced Gandhi, who influenced Dr. Martin Luther King. The whole idea is ahimsa or nonviolence in the most radical applied both to the inner and the outer life and completely changes the way that I I think of Jesus' teaching. I read the Sermon on the Mount more deeply because of Jane Friends. The only other example is uh, I was in Manila, Philippines at a conference talking and a Muslim friend said, let's let's go climb a mountain. So we arranged a car and got, and it was a hard mountain. We were climbing for hours and the end was like a cable and mud and slipping. We get up there covered with dirt. It's a grass top, a 360 degree view of the Philippines, the bays, the lakes and the sparkling blue ocean. He looks at his watch and says, oh, it's time for prayer. Would you like to join me? And he pulls out his knapsack, a prayer rug. Like, wow, that was interesting. And on his cell phone, he uses it to find the direction of Mecca, lays it down, and I kind of discreetly in behind. And so I do these motions, and the, the kind of explosive Allah Akbar, which is, you know, God, we turn to you. And, and I touch my forehead to the sacred earth with the Pacific Ocean all around us. And I, as a Christian believer encounter the God that I know through Jesus doing motions that I'm learning from a believer in God who's a Muslim. Wow. Okay. We've got two more historical evidence. The, what do we want to call it? Ambiguity of the historical evidence uh, for Christianity. You know, it's a little easier to see how religious pluralism might enhance one's faith just through awe and wonder. Uh, This one's a little bit harder to see how this is going to be good. Like how is it, helpful to just have not that good of evidence or so you know what i mean so i'm curious what you're going to say to this one it's taken me to jesus without the dogmas interesting and in some ways it's it i get more red in the face talking about the jesus of the gospels in the era of historical criticism the jesus seminar used to meet in my city santa rosa Northern California, and I'd go and sit in on these meetings at the Flamingo Hotel where they would look at the passages and they'd vote, you know, a black rock means it was not said by Jesus and put in a little red rock, it means it was, and there was pink and gray, I think. We used to joke that, you know, they had a colored New Testament, like the King James versions with the words, but it didn't cost any more than the black and white version because <laughs> there wasn't anything in color, pretty much. But they did, they would find passages. I remember the one that was uncontested by them was they hand Jesus a coin whose image on it, Caesar's, render under Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God's. And I get goosebumps again. If that's all we had of Jesus, we know something of what comes across in the Gospels is right. He was just this radical teller of parables, the one who could say, you've heard it was said, but ego me, but I say to you, right? And then to say this alternative, I found that with all the skepticism about the doctrines and what, how much Trinity is in the New Testament and so forth, 
the living, breathing son of man, as he called himself, and as the critics agree, uh, comes across more powerfully. And I am more excited to talk to people. I could take the, I could take the, what are they called? The pink and the red bits in the Jesus seminar text and just preach on those to any church in the country and feel like they were hearing the gospel. And just people, if people don't know, the Jesus seminar was a quite liberal and publicized group of New Testament scholars who made very, very basic claims about Jesus only, about what the historical Jesus actually said in their opinion. Yeah, um, very, very skeptical. Very skeptical. But, so I just want to say, then to you're saying there's plenty for a ton of sermons, right? Yeah, because we actually, it doesn't attack what we who think that Jesus manifests what the love of God looks like, what we believe. It makes us, there's a lot of doctrines, a lot of stuff we want to say. But again, remember the whole theme of this podcast for me is calmly settling down to the place when you encounter reasons for doubt and standing up, making sure you're breathing slowly, looking around, say, so where, where are we? Am I standing on anything? I haven't found anything yet. Okay, now I got to keep paying attention. When I have some ledge to stand on, it's usually, and this is my radical statement, it's the ledge of the gospel. What was good news about Jesus? I mean, listen, I dare you, I could walk into a pulpit right now. If I had only one verse to say what was good news about Jesus, and it was, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God's what is God, I'm all in. That's enough for me. This is my guy. Uh, Lastly, the resurrection. So the ambiguity around the resurrection, there's the ambiguity of the text itself, the the scientific problems of trying to think of how this happened, uh, the, just the unrepeatedness of this singular act. How do you get evidence for something that happened only once that's not repeatable? How can you wrap your faith in Christ in the doubt of the resurrection of Christ? Is that even possible? Ask yourself... In faced with skepticism, external or internal, about the resurrection. What do you need for hope? What's the minimum required that the good news, evangelium, the gospel, is good news? It's going to turn out, if you're really honest with yourself, that some things you thought were essential aren't. I told you what, what those are for me, right? That Jesus is this amazing teacher whose message is unparalleled, right? That that represents a revelation of what ultimate reality is all about. And that that did not end with Jesus' death, but the very presence of God is a Jesus-shaped presence. That's mine. I'm pretty clear, right? My, the core of what I have to stay here I stand, I can do no other. Now, when I encounter an argument about the resurrection that seems to take away the third one, then I stay calm and I say, I aspire to an understanding of Christianity, reasonable, justified understanding that includes all three. So, this one, I'm now, it's been attacked, so I'm going to be calm, but I'm going to look at that and see if I can reestablish it. Maybe 10 years from now, I'll be in your podcast and say, I couldn't do it. But so far, I've usually, there's, I've found a way to be able to say all three. And let's just finish with this. Imagine that when you do that question, what's the good news require? You say the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you have some reasons to give that. But I mean, there, there'll be many people believe that. And and they, and they, with a lot of deliberation, they say that has to be there for certain reasons. Okay, so then they encounter a reason for doubt, and they, they say, I can't. So they say, I aspire to read, talk, and with intellectual integrity to see whether I can be able to affirm that in what I think is a reasonable way. If they do, they reestablish it. And if not, they say, 10 years from now on the podcast, I wasn't able to hold on to that one, but I've been able to hold on to the others, and to those I continue to be. I... I bind my life to those good a place to end as any thank you so much phil for your time really appreciate it thanks dan 
Josh Gilbert for editing my conversation with Phil. I've got a link to my Instagram if you want to keep up with little new baby Soren. And I've also got a link to Phil's book, The Predicament of Belief, all that in the show notes, as well as a link to the Patreon, five bucks a month, sliding scale if you can't afford it. Email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, I think that's it. We'll see you guys in two weeks. And thank you for putting up with uh, this different schedule as I prioritize time with, I don't know, the coolest thing that's ever come into my life since I was born, as far as I can tell right now. All right, see ya.